Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the old vault for a classic episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This one was originally published in May of 2017. Uh, it was called Five Reasons to Never Take Your Space Helmet Off. And I remember why we did this episode. is because we went to the theater to see Alien Covenant. That's right. Yeah, uh, which... I haven't watched again since the theater, but I, I'm expecting actually, despite the bad reviews, it probably holds up pretty well as a new version of the 1950s Mad Scientist B-movie. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it since it, since it originally came out either, but uh, I, I consider it better than most science fiction films. <laughs> uh, at any rate, it does involve a trope that frequently pops up in science fiction, mm-hmm. people taking their space helmets off on uh, you know, alien worlds. Yeah. And then uh, then they're surprised when something terrible happens. Right. Just or, get or, that biosphere right in you. Right. Or the other, of course, example is where where characters take their helmets off on alien worlds and nothing bad happens, mm-hmm. uh, which is also, as you'll learn in this episode, equally preposterous. Yeah. Uh, like uh, the, the old Star Trek episodes. Yeah. And actually, that's what I'm comparing Alien Covenant more to. It's like... Uh, it's like a beautiful – if Ridley Scott photographed a 2017 version of Bride of the Monster by Ed Wood. <laughs> well, the great thing about Ridley Scott films is even even when they're bad, mm-hmm. they're pretty good. So, yeah. uh, I mean, there's going to be a there's going to be a certain degree of uh, of artistry that's going to be present even uh, even in other areas of the film, like Under Deliver. I think that was the case here. I remember some severe scripting and pacing issues, but I just kind of liked it anyway. Yeah, there, I think there are about three movies slammed <laughs> together into Alien Covenant, and two of them I really enjoyed. Uh, so uh, without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and pop the hatches uh, uh-huh. on our helmets and breathe deep the vault episode. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And boy, do we have a treat for you today because Robert and I saw Alien Covenant this past weekend. That's right. Yeah. On uh, Saturday, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try to avoid major plot spoilers, but this episode today is going to uh, spring off of an idea that came up when we were watching the movie. So we are going to talk about the movie a little in more general terms, but if you absolutely cannot bear to hear anything at all until you see it, you might want to pause here and come back once you've seen it. Like I said, no specific plot spoilers, but I mean, we've got to talk about the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, and I, I don't think we're going to be talking about any more depth than you would get out of the uh, the trailers for it. And there were so many trailers for this film. I feel, oh, yeah. I, I feel like this was the most, um, part of it may just be the sort of the algorithms of YouTube advertisements, but I felt like I was absolutely bombarded to the point where I just really wanted to respond and say, like, look, I, I, I'm on board. I'm going <laughs> to see it. Just stop making me watch trailers for it because I'm gonna, it's going to reach the point where I'm going to start losing interest. So Ridley Scott did the same thing with Prometheus where he didn't just do trailers, but he did scenes that take place before the movie starts. What oh, yeah. is it with him and that thing? I don't know. I, I think maybe part of it is just like shooting a lot of footage and mm-hmm. then with this film in particular, I felt like there was – so one of the things with a film like Alien Covenant is that by no means was this a small movie. Right. This was a large studio production. And mm. and over the years, 
Uh, Ridley Scott has has proven himself one of these directors who knows how he has the clout to work within that system, mm-hmm. but he seems to know how to to cater to expectations. Yeah, like you don't. Not that I follow this kind of thing just religiously, but I, you know, I don't remember ever hearing stories about Ridley Scott's battle with the studio over something. Like he seems to. Yeah, it may have happened. I don't recall hearing about that. It's not like yeah. uh, hearing about David Fincher's struggles on Alien Three with Fox. Yeah, and it, but, yeah, part of that is him having clout. You know, he's Ridley Scott. He's essentially a you know a, a living legend of uh, of the cinema, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but I also get the sense that he is willing to he's willing to work. He's willing to adjust that uh, or to, um, to 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 adjust the settings, uh, the trajectory on that uh, on that uh, that vision he has in order to see it to the theater. Which, and, what you're saying is he'll play ball. Yeah, yeah. I get the impression <laughs> that he's a he's a guy who will play ball. Okay, so here's so it is an alien movie. I will say it's an alien movie in the Alien franchise that actually felt kind of like an alien movie. And here's my short review. Almost all the things I can think of to say about it are criticisms. Uh, I felt that it had really similar problems with Prometheus, with the script. The human characters are underdeveloped. Their personalities and motivations didn't seem to be consistent from one scene to another. Parts of the plot definitely went on, and this is a cliche. I hate to use it, but it is the best descriptive term for it. It was on autopilot Mm -hmm. in certain parts. But... I just really liked it. <laughs> I enjoyed it nonetheless, despite all that. It was beautiful to look at. Of course, Ridley Scott's always a great set designer, great at the visual aspect of his movies, uh, creative and interesting things to explore in the first half at least. I love the gleeful sense of body horror paired with this classically ponderous mad scientist vibe, especially Mm -hmm. in the midsection of the movie. And Michael Fassbender is just heroically fun. So to the extent this makes any sense, I felt like the movie was somehow both stupid and an intensely pleasing work of art. Hmm. Okay. Well, this actually this in ways lines up with some of my feelings about it. It was definitely for me a film that I saw it. I wasn't sure how I felt about it, mm-hmm. but I keep thinking about it mm-hmm. every day since I saw it. And and I feel like for me at, at, at this point in my life and, and like the way I interact with films, like that's how I tend to judge it. Is it something is it more than like the structural completeness of a film or the or the character motivations and the character development? Like, is there something in the movie that I came back to? Mm-hmm. Because there's, for instance, there's so many just sort of paint by number superhero films, right? And they're a lot of fun. I enjoy seeing them, but it's just I'm not kind really of, into them. Well, I mean, I'm into them. I get excited about them. I'm excited to say see uh, the next Guardians of the Galaxy film uh, whenever it's, you know, I can watch it on an airplane or yeah. <laughs> however it comes together. But I enjoy seeing them and then I don't I don't chew on them afterwards. They kind of go in 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 one ear out the other kind of. Right. So with Alien Covenant, I I I kept thinking about it in terms of uh of of Scott's vision for this film Mm -hmm. and the fact that he, you know, like we said, will play ball Um, (laughs) because it's uh, because just as the uh, the uh, malevolent uh, organism in the alien series draws its form via the life forms that it annihilates. Right. uh, So, too, does Alien Covenant seem a a chimerical beast. So Uh it's a it's a Prometheus sequel in body. But with appendages that call back to Aliens, Alien 3, even a dash of uh, AVP in there for good measure. <laughs> 
And, you know, the monster's form varies, enabling the, the, the creature to better consume its victims. But the genetic mission remains the same. This, you know, unstoppable will of weaponized evolution created and recreated by those who would take on the mantle of gods. And, and as such, Ridley Scott, uh, I feel like he allowed Covenant's form to encompass fan and studio demands for, a more, for more monsters, for dashes of past installments in the franchise. But still at its heart, it's a Prometheus sequel. It's the, the second installment in a new film arc that uh, one commentator on call called, quote, a weirdly religious science fiction universe. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm – me personally – uh, I love both space horror and virtually anything that's weirdly religious. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's, I'm, I'm on that's board. That's bullseye for me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it though with – I mean the those aspects you mentioned, I love that they're all there but they also um, – would you say so many of them are not followed through on it's almost like they set something up to happen in the movie and then it just never happened yeah i mean i would be interested to learn more about sort of the behind the scenes and what was added what was changed because for instance there's a there's a shower scene not to not to spoil <laughs> anything later in the film and it's very AVP, and, yes. and it feels feels a bit tacked on. It's like the uh, the moment it goes. Uh, multiple reviewers have commented on this that at some point the movie suddenly becomes a slasher movie. It's like mm-hmm. a Friday the Thirteenth movie for a few minutes, and yeah. that's sort of how it felt to me. Yeah, and uh, and I also have to say that when it comes to the characters uh, of this film, like really, this is a film about two androids <laughs> and uh and and to a, and to a lesser extent a third character who is um who is sort of the, like the associate captain who ends up t- taking over the the Billy uh, Crudup yeah, yeah. character uh everyone else is 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 far less developed but at the core I mean, a film about two androids sort of struggling to figure out like where they stand in relationship to the to, to these 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 lesser creators. Are they are they their their guardians or are they their destroyers? Uh, you know, I'm 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 all on board with that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, so we got to get into the meat of the episode. But one final comment about the movie: Do you think they're ever going to stop with the the title format of franchise name colon abstract noun? <laughs> I'm so sick of it. Alien Resurrection, Alien Covenant, all the franchises do it now. It's, you know, it's like uh, t- Terminator, Genesis, yeah. whatever. I, it it makes me feel like the next one is going to be called like Alien Gamification. It just feels like such a product. I hate it. I wish they could give each movie its own title. Well, the last one was Prometheus. Yeah, so thumbs up for that. I get the feeling that it is about tying everything into this overarching brand. Yeah, and, I think it's just to get people into yeah. theaters. And you know. I mean, sometimes we use the the noun ty- uh, noun colon uh, additional keywords. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, template when say titling episodes of this podcast because a part of it is like I've only got so much space and I really need to convey what this is about so aliens colon covenant that lets you know that it's going to involve aliens it's going to involve colons uh-huh. it's going to involve something <laughs> quasi-religious so that's all you need to know but if we were to really follow this format every episode of ours would be called something like stuff to blow your mind colon respiration, which is sort of what we're going to get into today. So without spoiling anything significant about the plot, I I wanted to point out something this movie has in common with Prometheus. So it's got space explorers. Mm -hmm. That's no surprise. Astronauts going to other planets. And they just plunge their faces straight into the atmosphere and biosphere of an alien planet without protection. In Prometheus, there are these scenes where they take their helmets off for no reason I can really remember. I think they're just uh, for the heck of it. 
In Covenant, they just walk out of their landing vehicle without suits of any kind. They're, they're just wearing some hats and some mm-hmm. overcoats. Uh, now, I'm fine with characters behaving irrationally or unrealistically in horror and sci-fi movies. I, I think that's a pretty common element, and I'm okay with it. Yeah, I mean, basically the whole movie Covenant, it, it begins with a, hey, should we go check this out scenario, right. like so many horror films. Uh-huh. And if your characters were smart enough to stay on the path, Right. Then they would never, we would have no movie. Because well, what was that noise in the bushes? Yeah. I Let's mean, mo- go most horror stories are about going off the path. Yes. Yeah, should we go off the path? Should we go explore that? And yeah, you, you don't do that. You never get out of the boat. But if you never got out of the boat, we would have no film. <laughs> right. So I, I'm fine with that happening, uh, providing that I get, or provided that there's some consistent level of realism. Most modern sci fi movies, I would say, have a very healthy dose of fantasy in them. And that's mm-hmm. just one expression of that here. But today we wanted to explore the topic of why, if you're an actual exoplanet colonist or explorer, you really shouldn't want to take your helmet off uh, or otherwise open yourself up to the alien environment and and the sea of unknown possibilities that could come flooding in upon you. Right. Uh, one, one thing to keep in mind here is that, that we're we're definitely looking at, at why you should keep that that helmet on and the the dangers that are inherent to any any kind of alien environment we might experience. Uh, however, I feel like an important caveat to all this is that anytime we're looking at a fictional people landing on a fictional world yep. and taking their helmet off, I always have to wonder, okay, Would any sufficiently advanced civilization capable of not only interplanetary but interstellar travel, would they have all that worked out? Like would they have sufficient scanning technology to know just like down to the the finest detail Mm -hmm. that the air was breathable? Uh, Well, without spoiling too much about Alien Covenant, obviously they don't know that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But they're also religious uh, fanatics, not to play uh, David's advocate too much, but, um, <laughs> but they, are, uh, they are driven by, uh, by religious optimism in that film. So what you're saying, Robert, is uh, you're a little more gung-ho. I think maybe you're saying breathe in. Breathe in, brothers uh, yeah, and sisters. Well, I'm thinking that if, the te- if, if your technology is not picking it up, if there's a, a danger out there that your interstellar technology <laughs> is incapable of picking up on— let it act fast <laughs> because uh, movie, is movie, movies like Alien Covenant show us like there's no, you, there's no real victory in being a survivor. <laughs> it's better to be that uh, individual that gets, uh, has something jump out of him rather quickly. Right. At least you go out with a, with a burst. Yeah, a, a big chesty burst. Okay. Well, so maybe we should start by just acknowledging the concept of a spacesuit. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of easy to forget why we have them because we end up just focusing on how cool they look most of the time. Right. So a spacesuit is I I think I remember reading a NASA resource at some point a long time ago that put it like this and it was it's a spacecraft for one person. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, so, for example, the extravehicular mobility units that are worn by astronauts, when you've got to go outside and perform external work on the International Space Station and do a spacewalk, you put this suit on and it cools your body. It uh, it supplies you with oxygen, a breathable atmosphere. It purges the CO2 that you exhale when you're out there. Uh, it shields you from radiation. It shields you from impacts, from space debris. So... 
And these are all very important things. But another important aspect of any type of suit for extravehicular activity when you're out exploring the cosmos is that it's a contained environment. It's supposed to create a sealed barrier between external conditions and internal conditions. So this sort of means making the inside of the suit as Earth-like as possible no matter what the outside of the suit is. And, of course, this would also mean keeping out things that really just don't go well with your Earth-adapted biology. For example, foreign dust, gas, particles, radiation, and potentially life. Yeah, it comes back to the idea of like the spacecraft itself. It's, it's the idea that we as humans evolve not only to live on Earth, but to live within a very um, uh, thin portion of the atmosphere and under very specific environmental settings. And, uh, and and so there are places on our own earth where we, we go, we perish, mm-hmm. and therefore we have to we have to bring uh, part of our world with us, even if it's just a skin layer in a suit. Yeah. Now I can totally understand the impulse to want to take the spacesuit off. I can imagine mm-hmm. if I was somebody colonizing an exoplanet that was, uh, you know, that we thought would be habitable, that we could start living there. Obviously, protocols would be to maintain that seal to to keep the quarantine as long as there. There was any doubt whatsoever that what was outside could hurt us. But you just can't live that way, right? I mean, anytime you go outside, you've got to wear the suit. You you can't touch the rocks and the trees. You can't interact by contact, by respiration, by anything except through this barrier with the planet you live on. That sounds like a horrible existence. Well, I don't know. You know, environmental standards are changing a little every day, Joe. So (laughs) we'll check back in on this in a few years. Yeah. So I guess uh, now we should get into the five reasons that we've come up with, at least, why you should really not want to take your helmet off on an alien planet. This would be a good list to have, uh, you know, in in, in reduced form uh, as a sticker on the inside of your helmet. And then if when you're tempted to, when you're overcome by the beauty of, uh, uh, you know, exoplanet. Oh, I love it when an exoplanet has a nice diabolical name. (laughs) <laughs> like uh, Infernus B. Yeah, or Malibolga 6, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be. When you, when you land there and you think, ah, this place with this uh, this creepy name is actually rather beautiful. I'm going to get a, a breath of fresh air. Look to the lower left-hand portion of your visor and uh, go through this list. Pape Satan Alepi <laughs> 6E. <laughs> All right, so reason number one is going to be the obvious one, the one that you probably don't even need to think about. It's going to be atmospheric gas. Right. Can I breathe this atmosphere that I am seemingly uh, moving through? And we should be generous. This is one that sci-fi almost always takes care of. There's a line in the script where somebody says, atmospheric conditions nominal, the air, we can breathe it. But it's worth looking at what the atmospheres of other planets generally look like. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre said, you know, hell is other people. Once you start looking beyond Earth, I I propose an update, which is hell is other people's planets because we are just so tightly adapted to the Earth biosphere and, and, uh, and its very particular balance of gases. And to upset that balance significantly would be to change the properties of Earth and thus to change the biosphere. So w- we need our atmosphere to be the way it is, 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, about 0.9% argon and 0.1% trace gases, primarily carbon dioxide, plus a lot of uh, variation in water vapor in the air. 
Now, we don't know exactly what the atmospheres of terrestrial exoplanets are going to be. We know we can see some gas giants orbiting other stars in the galaxy. And those, of course, are going to be composed generally like gas giants are, like they'll have uh, hydrogen and helium atmospheres. But as far as the terrestrial exoplanets are uh, go out there, we, we don't know exactly what their atmospheres are going to be like. If you look at other terrestrial planets in our solar system, you do start to get a picture that might be local to us, but we don't know. Venus, atmosphere is about 97% carbon dioxide. Yeah, not, not good. Not so nice. Mars has an incredibly thin atmosphere. It's, you know, a one percenter kind of atmosphere. And what's there is about 96% carbon dioxide. Yeah, and of course with Venus too, uh, the, the reality is that uh, if you're breathing that on the surface, you're essentially standing in a pressure cooker too. Yes. So um, – so yeah, but, but but you're just talking about just the breathability of the the air, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if you arrived on Earth at a different point in Earth's history, you would have encountered a very different atmosphere on the primeval surface of Earth. Say about four billion years ago, we also had an atmosphere of much higher CO two concentration before the biogenic oxygenation of Earth about two billion years ago. Yeah, the original uh, terraforming. Now, carbon dioxide is obviously not good to breathe. It is what you exhale. It's the waste product of of human respiration. And breathing it in can lead to bad effects at low concentrations and death or asphyxiation or poisoning at high concentrations. I found an interesting chart uh, put together based on on research on carbon dioxide toxicity. And the chart was made by the International Volcanic Health Hazard Network. And it's got a sort of ascending scale of CO2 concentration in the air you're breathing and what the effects would be. So they say, you know, 2 to 3% of air, uh, you're not really going to notice what's going on, but there will be a shortness of breath if you exert yourself. If at 3% exposure, your breathing gets deeper, uh, 3 to 5% exposure, your breathing rhythm speeds up uh, and you, you might get headaches. At 5% exposure, your breathing gets really labored. You're going to have headaches, sweating, heavy pulse. At 7.5% exposure, you're going to have really rapid breathing, increased heart rate, headaches, sweating, dizziness, shortness of breath, loss of uh, strength in the muscles. Probably some mental fuzziness, like inability to work things out in your head. You're going to get sleepy and hear ringing in your ears. At 8 to 15%, you get the really bad stuff, vertigo, vomiting, loss of consciousness, uh, possibly death in this range. And then at 25%, you're going to have convulsions, rapid loss of consciousness, and death. And, of course, this is a situation, too, in control environments where yeah. the, the, the CO2 level can, can creep up. If, uh, if things are, are, um, are out of whack, say in a submarine environment. Yeah, or in the space shuttle. Yeah. Or uh, the, uh, or like the Apollo spacecraft. Mm-hmm. If you don't have your CO2 scrubbers working, you, you are in for a world of pain. And so as we said earlier, this is something the sci-fi movies usually do address. They're not just going to land on a planet with a carbon dioxide atmosphere, open the doors and say, breathe in. Well, unless it's, I feel like it, it happened all the time in Trek, though, right? What, like, they just beamed down somewhere and they couldn't breathe? I don't know. I mean, it's been a long time since I've really mainlined some Trek, but it seems like they're always just breathing the heck out of any atmosphere they came across. Like, every world 
was breathable. Uh-huh. Uh, and maybe there is a, maybe there was always an explanation or maybe there's, you know, some sort of transhumanist read where right. they've all had like an operation that makes them able to breathe carbon dioxide. Yeah. Like if, if this were uh, Banks's culture series, I'm sure that would be the, the explanation. Well, okay. They're members of the culture and their, their body is automatically adjusting to some different uh, atmospheric condition. Yeah. But I want to posit that you should still be careful here. So imagine you are in this sci-fi spaceship and you've arrived at a planet and they analyze the atmosphere. Hopefully they've analyzed it before you went to the planet because yeah. they can do that via the uh, spectral analysis of the, the colors mm-hmm. of light that reflect off of it. But you should arrive there uh, and – well, you arrive there and they say, OK, oxygen atmosphere, you can breathe it. It still might not be safe to take that suit off, uh, even just in terms of atmospheric gas, because even though ambient carbon dioxide levels might not be at a concentration to cause poisoning or asphyxiation, there could be other possibilities of localized events. So Mm. one thing I want to point out is on August 21st, 1986, there was one of the weirdest and most tragic natural disasters in modern history, and this was near Lake Nios in Cameroon. Robert, I think you've probably read about this before. Yeah, I believe there's a House of Works article on this. There is. There is. This is one of the things I looked at. Uh, So Lake Nios is a crater lake. It's resulting from volcanic eruptions several hundred years ago. And on this day in August 1986, the lake suddenly exploded. The lake exploded, sending towers of water up into the air. And it produced this cloud of gas that rushed out of the lake into the surrounding countryside. And it ended up killing more than 1,700 people. In the nearby town of Nios, nearly every person was killed. Only six people survived. And the killer was carbon dioxide. Hmm. Now, lakes and volcanic craters often accumulate dissolved carbon dioxide in the water. But in most cases, it gets absorbed into the atmosphere more gradually, right? It rises up and gets released. In this case, it looks like what happened is that the water under high pressure at the bottom of this lake began to accumulate more and more dissolved CO2 at really high concentrations without ever releasing it. And then some unknown event, could have been a small earthquake or anything, it caused the lake to suddenly release all that carbon dioxide at once and this massive cloud of poison gas that traveled at about 60 miles per hour across the surface of the land. So fortunately now that lake has degassing pipes and it's got an alarm system that monitors the CO2 at the bottom of the lake water, meaning you can prevent something like this from happening in the future. But it goes to show that local atmospheric conditions can be altered in a very deadly way at a moment's notice. So if you're walking around on a rocky alien planet with breathable oxygen atmosphere, should you also consider the frequency and location of geological outgassing of this type? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, this sounds very much like a planet that might be encountered in the uh, Chronicles of Riddick world. Oh, know, really? Like a, like a, a, uh, <laughs> a regular uh, you know, occurrence that they can sort of plan the action scene around. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh oh, everybody's sensors start going off. starts going off because a big CO2 surge is about to occur. And then they're having to stop in the fight sequence and get their masks on. Can I admit something you're probably going to hate me for? What's that? I've never seen a Riddick movie. Oh, well, you've got a remedy to this, Joe, at least for the first two. Yeah. Yeah. How many are there? So, wait, it's it's Pitch Black, mm-hmm. Chronicles. Yeah. Of- Narnia of Riddick. Chronicles of Narnia of Riddick, yeah. Uh, and what else? There's more after I that? I think the third one's just Riddick. Okay. And then, uh, the, and then the, it's just Rid. It's going to be Rid or Dick in the, the next one, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, the first one, the first one is a fun, 
action film with uh, some cool critters in it. Yeah. Uh, and, and many people hold it up just as an objectively, you know, good sci-fi action flick. Good and monsters. The, yeah, the yeah. monsters are good in that one. Uh, the second one is uh, a bit silly, a little Flash Gordony, right? But but I actually probably enjoyed that one the most, uh, mm-hmm. just because it it plays it plays to things I like in kind of a a goofy um, a space opera scenario. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the villain in that one's really good too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll have to check it out. But they often enc- encounter this scenario where, like in the first one, the the, the whole deal is that the 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 planet has these uh, these these plot-centric uh, 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 periods of light and darkness, and the monsters only come out at night. Mm. But when they make the next one, they should definitely consider a, uh, a, an explosive CO2 planet because I can, I can picture it working beautifully. Well, that is one thing I guess we don't know. So in this episode, we're going to be raising things that could be possibilities on mm-hmm. unknown planets, but we don't really know if there are planets out there where there is very frequent... CO2 outgassing all over the planet. On Earth, this can happen, and we've just shown examples of how it can be deadly, but it doesn't happen all that often. It's not like if you're just generally landing on the surface, you'd expect to encounter that. Because, yeah, you can imagine a scenario in which this is this is every day, this is just a regular part of life on uh, Chernobyl 6 or whatever the name of the planet is, Right. and a human is just not going to be evolved to survive that. Right. Uh, and, and it is something that you might expect to happen on geologically active of planets all over the place. So you've got an icy mantle. It's got materials in it like uh, CO2 or sulfur dioxide that erupt in clouds uh, that disperse on the surface. And it's true on Earth. Lots of of the deaths that are due to volcanic eruptions and other geologic uh, events like that are not always from the things you'd think of, like lava flows, mud and pyroclastic flows and ashfall, but due to poison gas inhalation and suffocation. And you can even see that there are other objects in our solar system that have eruptions like this, like Jupiter's moon Io is incredibly uh-huh. geologically active. It's full of volcanoes on its surface that erupt with sulfurous glee. Yeah, and on this other world, they just might be used to it. I'm reminded of the, the scene on the, the Simpsons where Marge just casually, uh, it's a Treehouse of Horror episode, where Marge just casually says, oh, it's the fog that turns people inside out creeping in. <laughs> you know, and, and in this world, yeah, that's just the fog that turns people inside out. It just happens every now yeah. and then. It's just how life goes. And uh, either you're, you're evolved to, uh, to roll with the punches or you're not. That's, they sing a song, don't they? Just one yes. sniff of that fog and you're inside oh, yeah. out. Yeah, it's a big dance number uh-huh. with uh, a dog in it. Yeah, and kind of going after Abe Simpson's exposed uh, viscera. Yeah. Oh, it's good times. Anyway, okay, well, there are some possibilities, but I think we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we will look at probably the biggest thing to consider. All right, we're back. So, Robert, we assume that the gases of the atmosphere on our exoplanet are safe. We, we want to explore or colonize. We've thoroughly checked it out. It has a breathable atmosphere with oxygen. We've checked its geological activity. It's not going to be belching poison gas on us constantly wherever we land. We're, we're pretty confident about the gas quality itself. Mm-hmm. Should we just take the helmet off now? Well, then we're getting into, yeah, the, the, the next big worry is going to be what if there's some, something in the air, some sort of life form, be it alien spores, some sort of alien disease. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what I'm about to breathe in, right? Right. So this is reason number two, pathogens. Obviously, it's not going to be spoiling much about Alien Covenant to say that this plays a role in there. It's there in the trailers. You know what Alien's mm-hmm. about. 
but in our uh, so our we we did a live episode from September last year, which was stuff to blow your mind live. Actually, we put the franchise title before the colon in that one. Didn't we, we did, we did stuff to blow your mind live colon. Something about Star Trek, I, I think, was the title. I'm eating so many crows today, man. <laughs> so, yeah, it was uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live, Prime Directives, and Planetary Contamination. And what we talked about in that episode was uh, NASA protocols for preventing cross-contamination of life forms between different planets. And that, that follows up on Article 9 of the United Nations Outer Space Treaty, which contains the following language. Parties to the treaty shall pursue studies of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, to conduct exploration of them so as to avoid their harmful contamination and also adverse changes in the environment of Earth, resulting from the introduction of extraterrestrial matter and, where necessary, shall adopt appropriate measures for this purpose. Yeah, and this comes down to the idea that, sure, if we went to the Klingon homeworld, maybe we couldn't catch the Klingon flu or whatever kind of ailment it happens to be. Yeah, maybe but we could, but maybe, even if we couldn't, yeah. what could we do? Right, yeah, but the idea too is that we only have this one model of life and we have to sort of work forward with the assumption that any kind of life that evolves in another world is going to be uh, is, is the potential to be a comparable system. Right. We, we if, Even if we couldn't get germs from them, what if we could give germs yeah. to them? Uh, so, yeah, those are the two primary concerns mentioned there, forward contamination and back contamination. Forward contamination is this ethical, scientific concern against contaminating other planets with Earth life, which could potentially harm any microbes that already exist there or obviously larger organisms. But if there is anything like that around us, we don't see it. Uh, or it could be damaging the integrity of future scientific research on that planet or moon. Like if you want to go there later and try to figure out if there's any indigenous life, you might have ruined your chances if you spread Earth life all over it. But the other concern is more akin to what we're looking at today which is back contamination. And this is based more on self-preservation. We don't want to endanger Earth life by accidentally returning alien pathogens or other dangerous life forms to our home planet. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the primary relevance of this in uh, the Outer Space Treaty and in NASA protocols is the planets that are within reach of us, right, which as far as we can tell look fairly devoid of life. We, we might get a surprise, but we're not seeing anything running around on the surface. What would happen if we tried to apply the biocontainment pr principles to a planet that's obviously teeming with life? If we go to an alien world and there's stuff all over the surface that's reproducing, should we feel safe to go down and walk around with the helmet off and take in some air? <laughs> mm, I would say maybe not. No? Yeah. Okay, well— there is an article that I wanted to talk about. I found in Astrobiology magazine, and that's a magazine about the the hypothetical study of uh, of astro, of, you know, applying astronomy principles to other life forms around mm -hmm. the around the galaxy. Obviously, we don't know whether they exist, so it's all uh, a lot of hypothetical stuff. But it also deals with the origins of life on Earth and uh, microbial environments and things like that. And the article is called "Alien Infection" by Leslie Mullen from August two thousand three. And uh, it, it draws in some thoughts on the subject of whether we could be infected by alien pathogens on another planet. So it cites the American astrobiologist Christopher F. Chiba. And at the time, he held the Carl Sagan chair at SETI. Now he's a professor at Princeton. 
Uh, Chiba says there are two potential types of alien pathogens we need to worry about. One would be toxic and the other would be infectious. Infectious are the types of germs we share between us here on Earth. They, they infect a host. They can be passed from host to host. And they, they are uh, parasitizing your body in a way. They're using your body to do something in the reproductive cycle. Toxic pathogens would be merely those that produce a poison or act as a poison that damages the body even if you're not the intended host of this organism. So first of all, there's some good news because we should think about how viruses and bacteria and infectious agents work here on Earth. The strain of a disease that affects maybe dogs and chickens or even chimpanzees might not infect humans. In fact, it often doesn't. Lots of our parasites are co-evolved, meaning they're, they're finely tuned to their preferred host organism. And in the same way, animals evolve traits to live in a certain ecosystem. You know, think of the way the, the hands and the feet and the tails of tree-dwelling primates specialize in climbing trees and hanging from branches and swinging between branches, that brachiation motion. Pathogens evolve to certain ecosystems as well, but those ecosystems tend to be the body of their primary host. Thus, if you've got alien pathogens that are not specifically evolved to colonize our bodies, they might not be able to. Then again, this goes both ways. It seems unlikely uh, that we would encounter a space microbe finely tuned to infect our bodies, but if we did, our immune systems would probably not be finely tuned to defend against them. Hmm, that's true. So what would this look like? So, for example, you've got a microorganism that lives in the icy soil of Mars. It might be able to get inside our bodies, but the internal environments of our bodies, there are several options. The, our bodies might kill it. It might be too hot, too wet. It's just not how it's adapted. Alternately, it could maybe occupy our bodies without really doing anything. You know, it could infect us, but it wouldn't necessarily cause disease or illness or rapidly reproduce, take over our cells or make toxic byproducts or cause any other kind of damage. But every now and then on Earth, there is one of these scary situations where a pathogen that previously could only infect another type of animal crosses the species barrier and becomes able to infect humans. And so we wonder if the same thing could happen with the microbes of another planet. So, like, if we're trying to figure out how we could be attacked by microbes that did not evolve to uh, infect us and that our immune systems did not evolve to fight off, are there any Earth parallels we could look to that would give us an idea of what that war between us and the microbes would look like? The author of this piece does come up with an answer. So she talks to John Rummel, NASA's former planetary protection officer. And Rummel points out, you know, there's one way to guess how our bodies might be affected by microbes of other planets. And that's to look at the effect of, quote, nonspecific microbes on Earth, which is the, are those that didn't co-evolve with the specific host. Now, one example would, I think, fall more into the category I mentioned earlier of toxic bacteria. And this would be the example of cyanobacteria. Cyanobacteria is all over the place on Earth. It's also known as blue-green algae, even though it's not really algae, and you find it everywhere you go. So if you're out walking on a dock and you see blooms of this uh, kind of turquoise scum sloshing around against the dock, you, mm -hmm. you might be looking at blue-green algae or cyanobacteria. So cyanobacteria are capable of producing biological poisons known as cyanotoxins. For example, neurotoxins that attack the nervous system and hepatotoxins that attack the liver 
liver. And blooms of cyanobacteria in alpine lakes, the article points out, have been linked to the deaths of cattle in the area around the lakes, even though it's not that the cyanobacteria evolved to infect the cattle, and it's not that they're specifically trying to protect themselves from being eaten by cattle. It's just that the cyanobacteria's poisons are very general, and they work across a broad range of organisms. So in the same way that you might have, if you can imagine a large alien creature with a spiked tail, yes, spike is very, very broad in its application. <laughs> it can cut into and decapitate and disembowel uh, varying types of life forms. Right. This is a brilliant analogy. And, uh, and, and the same for just a, 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 a sufficiently deadly um, strain of cyanobacteria. Right. Okay. So it's not like if an alien had, I don't know, a, a, a human-shaped Iron Maiden designed specifically <laughs> to pierce human bodies, that might not work on some cosmic jellyfish on right. a gas planet somewhere. But if you just got a big spike on your tail, yeah, you can use it on pretty much anything. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a good comparison. But another example would be uh, going away from the toxicity example and more toward the infectious example would be uh, the bacteria Serratia marcissans. And this is a rod-shaped gram-negative bacterium that can be found infecting an extremely diverse range of hosts. The, the article cites this as, as one example of something that sort of works from one end of the evolutionary bush to another. It can infect humans, of course, and sometimes it's responsible for infections that are uh, acquired in what's supposed to be a sterile environment, like hospital-acquired infections. But it can also infect everything from fruit flies to coral. Whoa. Yeah, crazy. So if there are organisms on Earth that can be that generalized in, in the types of hosts they infect, you can imagine the same thing being true of some kinds of alien microbes. Now, the difference there might be even bigger because they are not even part of our evolutionary tree. But if we're similar enough as organisms, it's, it's possible they could infect us. Yeah, similar enough. I think that's where a lot of the, the danger lies. And in this, I want to I want to touch on parasites for just a little bit. Nice. So so here's the thing: taking into account, yeah, all the variables of convergent evolution on a foreign world, um, that's one thing. But I, I'm not sure the greatest worry is that you would have a fine-tuned parasite taking to to our body the way that it has you know evolved to take advantage of a host, right? Uh, because. Even on our own planet, in the midst of our own ecosystem, we see the harmful and even fatal consequences of the parasite just getting lost and, and perishing inside of the wrong host or even, you know, the right host. It just gets turned around. Parasitic death by misadventure. Yeah. It's a misadventure you got to be wary of. For instance, uh, the pork tapeworm is a prime example of this. Tell me more. So it needs. Wait, hold on. Sorry, is this what you'd get from eating undercooked pork burgers? Yeah, yeah. That's the the name. Yeah, oh. the pork tapeworm. Ugh. So this is a this is a parasite that needs to venture inside a pig to complete its life cycle, but the eggs often wind up inside of a human instead. The eggs hatch. The confused larvae uh, don't make it to the human intestines. Instead, they burrow into the bloodstream. They're swept through the body, often winding up in the brain, forming cysts. And this can disrupt brain functions, damage the brain. It can cause uh, uh, hydrocephalus uh, and the result. And it can also result in brain hernias that cause coma or death. Whoa. This is, this is like some alien stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, re- really, if you want to... 
if you want to explore some just complex, you know, not only xenomorph-esque, but like even beyond that level of complexity uh, in terms of life cycles, uh, the parasitic world is phenomenal, especially when you have these sort of crazy branching um, uh, life cycles that involve multiple organisms. It's it's delightfully grotesque stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, 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 these parasites you encounter in another world, they or the parasites that encounter you and even enter you, and maybe they they don't have the they've not evolved to fully take advantage of you and serve as a proper parasite. But what if they could still get inside you? They get they get lost. They don't know what to do. This is actually something I thought of quite a bit in viewing Alien Covenant because we see uh, a few different horrific scenes where these neomorphs, these uh, these these white sort of uh, proto xenomorph creatures, they they burst out of the infected person like through the spine or through the mouth. Yeah, it's uh, and it really gave me the idea of oh these poor things they don't know where they are. These poor creatures, yeah. they're just lost inside this human host, and they're just trying to get out wherever they can. Yeah, it's funny. If you go back to the old Alien movies, maybe it's not funny. I don't know. It's, if you go back to the older Alien movies, the mm-hmm. aliens we see in those movies have a much more highly specified life cycle. Yeah. They infect a person the same way every time, and they emerge from a person the same way every time. Yeah. And these newer movies seem to be developing more uh, more general diversity in the way the alien organisms parasitize their hosts. Yeah. So, again, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, my, my basic point is the uh, parasite need only gain access to any of your major body systems or the body cavity itself to really mess things up. So its life cycle might be, uh, might be doomed. But what about yours? <laughs> yeah, so I think we should admit that we just don't know what kind of dangers exist on real planets out there and to what extent we would be vulnerable to them if they did. But the possibility space of fatal outcomes, I would say, is vast. And we just don't know what the probability of of real encounters is within that space. You could possibly have your body wrecked by an alien parasite that doesn't know what to do with you, a la the pork tapeworm. You could effectively uh, be infected by a pathogen that deems you close enough to its ideal environment or or host organism. Or you might be poisoned by the toxic byproducts of, of defensive poisons in a microbial life form that wants nothing to do with you. But the story actually gets a little bit worse for our intrepid colonists on this exoplanet because I want to mention a couple things here that specifically have to do with space travel. First of all, I'm sure you've read about this, Robert. Space travel jams up your immune system. So for several years now, NASA has been studying the effects of space flight on immune system response of crew members aboard the ISS. Uh, I've got a NASA news piece here from August 2014 reporting the findings of the NASA Integrated Immune Study and Clinical Nutrition Assessment. And so far, results have shown that astronauts have a problem with diminished immune capacity during their time on the ISS. (laughs) Specifically, uh, NASA's Integrated Immune Study showed that immune cells remained present in the blood but their activity was confused. Some cells are overactive, other cells are underactive, and this leads to a condition they refer to as asymptomatic viral shedding, which means you've got dormant viruses inside your body 
that wake up and become active once again without the host showing normal symptoms of infection. And then in turn, this viral reactivation triggers immune overreaction, leading to symptoms like allergies and rashes. And so this is oftentimes why you see, uh, you might see people in the ISS like filming videos and they look like they're having bad allergies. Yeah. You know, this is a, this touches on just sort of the the general risk of, of course, interplanetary travel, certainly interstellar travel, is that it's not just you're you're traveling from a hospitable world, Earth, mm-hmm. to some inhospitable world like Diablo Three. Right. Uh, you were you were trying <laughs> to get there. You have to travel a thoroughly uh, inhospitable environment, that of of, of space, deep space, uh, without the you know protection from. Well, this gets into, you know, what kind of technology would you have uh, worked out to enable your trip, but, uh, you know, not having uh, proper protection from radiation, perhaps not having – you get into the the, the mental realm as well, like Mm -hmm. being isolated for extended periods of time. Like you're you're liable to show up at that other world a little bit crazy, sick, without properly functioning immune system, and then you still have to deal with uh, the rigors of a foreign biosphere. The idea is that the day you meet a space microbe could be the day your immune system is just about at its worst. Huh. And so the article cites NASA immunologist Brian Crucian, who says, quote, if this situation persisted for longer deep space missions, he's talking about the, the immune condition of people in the ISS, it could possibly increase risk of infection, hypersensitivity, or autoimmune issues for exploration astronauts. Uh, And so what causes this? We don't fully know yet, but there are a bunch of hypotheses. They focus on microgravity, stress, lack of sleep, uh, microbial environment or microbial exposure, isolation and exposure to radiation. On the plus side, I would say all of these are things that we would hope, as you just alluded to, Robert, you would be able to address by the time we're an exoplanet colonizing species. If you're trying to travel to exoplanets in a spaceship that doesn't have artificial gravity, Mm -hmm. that hasn't come up with ways of dealing with radiation exposure or stress, you've got bigger problems. You know, you're you're probably not going to make it there. Yeah, I mean, unless you're going with a sci-fi scenario where basically everyone just needs to get out of the pool, you know, everyone right. has to get off of Earth and start Some, founding these colonies, yeah. and it—that's the motivation for getting there—is that it's either go or perish. Totally. Uh, so that is something we should keep in mind. The other thing I had to mention: so, is space travel appears to make us immunocompromised. Also, multiple studies have shown that spaceflight conditions can increase the virulence of known pathogens. One example would be Salmonella typhimurium. So in some experiments, when you took the strain of Salmonella into space, once it came back, it was more deadly to mice than Earth-grown strains of the same bacterium. So if you can imagine picking up a germ on an alien planet and then Ash overrides Ripley's quarantine procedure and you get in the ship and take it back to space with you, you could be making things even worse for yourself. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss killer allergens. All right, we're back. And I have to say, this is an area that 
I had not really given much thought of. When I think of risks on an alien world, mm-hmm. um, I tend to think of, yeah, I think of atmosphere. I think of uh, diseases and foreign organisms. Uh, I think of some of the things we're going to discuss in a bit, like radiation. But the idea of just, oh, my allergies are acting up <laughs> because um, uh, uh, Cositis 6 is <laughs> just, just really affecting my sinuses. Well, again, I just wanted to explore possibility space. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that I think has been um, widely explored. I just want to think about it as a possibility. So small bits of organic matter in the air, for example, the pollen of plants or other airborne life forms, these are the kinds of allergens we encounter here on Earth. And I wondered what people with uh, allergic susceptibility might might encounter on an alien planet. They might not be active pathogens. They might not be germs trying to invade your body – but that could make your body go haywire, that could trigger this critical immune system response and and death by asthma or anaphylaxis. Uh, So this process might not be as speedy as some other dangers, but could represent a threat to colonists who burn their helmets or otherwise open them up and, and breathe deep of the alien biosphere. So to look at whether this is a possibility, I think we should take a quick look at how allergic responses work. An allergic reaction is basically just a malfunction of the immune system. It happens when a foreign substance called an allergen comes into contact with the body and the immune system mistakes the substance for a hostile pathogen, right? It it thinks that you are being infected by a germ that needs attacking when in fact it's just some harmless stuff. It's a piece of protein, pollen, something like that, you know, uh, shrimp. (laughs) And this triggers an immune system response that is unnecessary and self-destructive. It's kind of like if you've got an army base and the wind blows a tumbleweed up against the exterior fence of the base and a malfunction in the base's automated defense network responds by shelling the area with heavy artillery, destroying part of the base in the process. Uh, So we don't fully understand all of the deep underlying causes of allergic reactions like why some people have specific allergies and other people don't. Twin studies do seem to show that there's a strong genetic component to allergies, but uh, environmental influences are a factor as well. According to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, a little less than about 8% of adults in the U.S. have respiratory allergies, also known as hay fever. Worldwide, it's more it, – it's like 10% to 30% of people as far as we know. And so it's generally true that allergic reactions to new substances don't occur immediately the first time you get exposed exposed to those substances. The body has to encounter the allergen, produce allergen-specific antibodies known as IgE antibodies, and then allow those antibodies to bind to receptors on immune cells called mast cells and basophils. And the delay between this first exposure, the sensitizing exposure, and then the potential for the first dangerous reaction I think is usually considered to be about a week or 10 days. So this could be something that sneaks up on you. You've been on the surface of this planet for a while. Yeah. Uh, you think everything's okay. Nobody's gotten sick in the first day or two, but suddenly you might get really bad asthma. And so this is more of a danger of prolonged exposure to an alien biosphere. The first encounter probably wouldn't harm you, 
But once this sensitization has happened, if the body encounters that same allergen again, the cells trigger what's known as an allergic cascade. And this means the body floods with allergy mediators like histamine, which causes dilation of the blood vessels, low blood pressure, itching, sneezing, digestive problems, etc. And if this gets bad enough, it leads to, of course, what we know as anaphylaxis. You Mm -hmm. know, this is the really severe reaction that can be fatal if not treated quickly. So I was wondering how how dangerous is anaphylaxis? How fatal is it? Can can it cause death? Yes, uh, but the odds aren't as bad as you'd think. So a 2014 study in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology found that anaphylactic shock resulted in between 63 and 99 deaths in the United States every year. However, uh, that's only about 0.3% of cases where people presented in hospitals with anaphylaxis. So if you can get to a hospital, it looks like your odds are pretty good. Treatment usually tends to be a big shot of epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, so you get the mm-hmm. rush. Uh, like and it is in the EpiPen. Right? Exactly, the EpiPen. It's, a, it's an epinephrine auto-injector. One hopes that by the time we get to these foreign planets, the prices have come down <laughs> a little bit and they can stock up the ships with them. Um, it's less clear to me what the survival rate without medical attention or epinephrine would be uh, due to anaphylaxis. But, of course, on the surface of an alien planet – can you get to a hospital or or can you get your epinephrine shot in time? I guess we would just hope that your med droid is working well. It has it has uh, EpiPens for fingers ready to, <laughs> to drive them in. That's right. Every time it tries to hug you, you get the adrenaline injection. <laughs> uh, so the other the other thing to think about would be asthma attacks, which can also be triggered by allergic reactions to inhaled irritants, and they're often more deadly in the modern day. Uh, so an asthma attack causes constriction of the airways, and according to the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, about ten Americans die from asthma every day, and in 2014 asthma killed 3,651 people. So it's usually treated with inhaled bronchodilators like the the emergency inhaler that you have, the rescue inhaler. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can be treated with other stuff in the case of a really bad uh, uh, asthma attack. So if you're on the surface of an alien planet, can you imagine what types of things that go into your body might cause a severe allergic reaction? Of course, it could be pollen or spores from an alien plant or some other kind of germinating life form. could be alien foods if you find yourself eating them, though I guess – have we factored in – Robert, do you consider if you take your helmet off, do you also just eat the stuff around you? I don't know. I was thinking about this the other night because I watched um, uh, the new uh, MST3K episode that deals with the um, um, the, the lost world. You know, um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, story oh, wow. where a German submarine winds up in this uh, place where evolution's all wonky, and you still have all these dinosaurs. And they immediately, like right after they they, they kill the first dinosaur, they cook it up and they eat it. Just no concerns <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, um, it would be it would be funny to see that. Uh, uh, utilized in some of these sci-fi scenarios where they kill a neomorph and they're like, oh, we're, we got to eat. So right. let's fire up the grill. Sick of this freeze-dried ice cream. <laughs> uh, but hey, how about another thing for anaphylactic shock? What about the venom of an alien organism? Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at the terrestrial example and you have 
plenty of, of, uh, of, of small uh, organisms that pack a substantial punch thanks to their, their neurotoxins. Yeah, but it wouldn't even have to be that the, or, the organism's natural venom is strong enough to kill you. I mean, that could have been a reason we cited all on its own, actually, mm-hmm. would be the venom of alien arthropods. Uh, but imagine that the venom is not enough to kill you on its own. You still could have one of these immune system malfunctions. Uh, that, you know, it, it, basically you get stung by the alien equivalent of a wasp. What would we call it? The Infernus 7 hymenopteroid. <laughs> and it stings you and gives you a dose of something that really is just meant to hurt, but instead you have an allergic reaction to the insect. And according to the uh, American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, up to 50% of people who die from allergic reactions to insects had no previously documented allergy. Like they didn't know they were allergic. So sounds like it could be a scary scenario on an alien world. Yeah, fear of alien bees. Alien bees, by the way, also a brand of uh, professional lighting equipment for photographers. No way. Yeah, yeah, they have a, a, a lovely, lovely logo. Dude, I just looked it up. Yes, they give it. So they give him the alien face with the large eyes. Yeah, it's like a gray, except he's not gray. He's yellow because he's a bee, and they make his wings yellow too. I'm not saying. I'm not sure why I'm saying he. I guess it looks kind of masculine in the logo here, but but the bees we know and love are women, right? I know about this because my wife is a photographer, and uh, and there have been times in the past where she's like, can you help me get the, the, the alien bees? Make sure you, can you, can you uh, get the alien bees out of the car for me? So that the alien bees have become a normal part of my life. But then also on top of talking about uh, potential alien allergens that, that could get you, I, I don't know to what extent that's a real thing to worry about, but I thought that was worth considering. Mm-hmm. There's also this other class where, we, you know, we've looked at infectious agents and, and microorganisms and we've looked at allergens, which is like bits of matter that upset your body. I wonder if there's also categories of things in between that we haven't even reckoned with, that we, we don't even fully understand because there's just not a strong analogy on Earth. It makes me think about one of the picks from uh, the my, my fiction pick from the summer reading episode we did last year, which was a sci-fi book that I really loved called Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. And a lot of reviewers seem to hate this book, I think, because they found it depressing and pessimistic, conjuring up this universe where space colonist characters come to the conclusion that Earth might be the only viable home for us in the galaxy. And the reason is that based on a very small sampling of planets, planets seem to be either uninhabitable, unable to sustain life, or already home to hostile microorganisms – and uh, and so there's this organism. I don't want to spoil too much about the book, but they go to a planet where there, where there is this organism that they just don't really understand. It does seem to infect and kill people, but it doesn't really work like microorganisms that we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. At some point, a character tries to compare it to a fast-acting prion, like the you know these misfolded proteins that make copies of themselves and dan- damage our tissues that way. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, then they rule out. They say it actually doesn't really work that way. It's just a sci-fi scenario, but it does make me think about the possibility that there could be tiny chemically active molecules and objects that act upon our bodies in ways that are not even familiar to us uh, in the ways we're familiar with from microorganisms or from allergens. Hmm, interesting. 
I'm not that familiar with uh, with Kim Stanley Robinson. Is there another work by this author that I should recognize? This is the only book of his that I've read, but I know he's well known for his. Uh, he did a trilogy of books about Mars, about terraforming Mars. Oh yes, that that must be where where I recognize his name from. Okay, the, they're like different color. I think it's called oh, like yes, Red, like Mars, Red Mars, Mars and Green Mars. Mars. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've I've not read those, but I have uh, friends who speak highly of them. Yeah, I have, I haven't read them either. But I so despite the fact that a lot of people didn't like Aurora, I really loved. It. Uh, I thought it was a, a fascinating counterpoint to a lot of the space exploration fiction we usually see. Are you ready to look at the next threat to the unhelmeted space explorer? Uh, bring it on. Helmet still on, ready to look at uh, reason number four. Okay, how about killer particles? Ooh. So we discussed this in our episode, Your Health as a Mars Colonist. Many alien worlds are likely to contain extremely fine particles of dust and soil that could cause health problems or even kill you. Uh, one thing that we mentioned in that previous episode that I just wanted to mention again, in December 1972, you had the crew of the Apollo 17 walking on the moon. They're out there doing their extravehicular activity. Uh, did they play golf? I can't remember who played golf. Mm, yeah, I can't remember offhand either. Some people played golf. Maybe they did. Maybe that was somebody else. But astronauts Harrison Schmidt and Eugene Cernan, and they were operating at a location near the Sea of Serenity. And when they got back inside the lunar module after the EVA, Harrison Schmidt experienced what has been called, quote, lunar dust hay fever, which was this respiratory reaction to inhaling fine particles of lunar regolith. So the dust on the surface of the moon has these weird qualities. It's abrasive. It's almost kind of been described like tiny fine shards of glass. It sticks to everything. It smells like gunpowder. Apparently, it's hard not to inhale it when you're messing around on the surface of the moon. And when mm -hmm. you do, it's not good for your respiratory system. It, it, it messes you up. Other planets also have other types of surface soil that are going to be very different than what we're used to on Earth. And we need to consider the possibility that all of these surface soils could have chemicals in them, fine particles that could really be a threat to our health and, and could even kill us. Even on Earth, there are situations where inhalation of fine particles can lead to respiratory diseases. Like you can – if you inhale a lot of extremely fine silica, like if you're mm -hmm. a miner or a sandblaster or something, you can inhale this uh, stuff, this fine silica that it leads to something called silicosis. And that's just not good for your lungs. It depends on exactly what kind of exposure you get, but eventually it can lead to progressive massive fibrosis, which is just destroys your lungs. It's almost like your lungs filling up with concrete. Uh, you, you do not want things like this going into your lungs. And things like – and these fine grains could be present on many other worlds. Also, Mars is a good example of places where the soil is believed to contain chemicals that are not just dangerous in terms of, of them being fine and, and, uh, and respirable. But the Martian soil is known to contain perchlorates, which have detrimental effects on the thyroid and hormone production in the human body. And we don't know what kinds of toxic chemicals could be in the soil of alien planets – but if you break the seal between the inside and outside, it's difficult to keep fine grain particles separate. 
And then, of course, that's just assuming these are just straight-up particles and they're not radioactive particles. Right, because even Earth has naturally occurring radioactive particles, radionuclides, which can be hazardous to your health if you inhale them. And so we don't also know the extent to which the surface of another planet might be peppered with fine radioactive particles that you can suck right in with a deep breath. All right, so we're down to the last item on our checklist before opening the helmet. And again, this is not just the opening of the helmet, but the breaching of the mini spacesuit and the presumed protective layers that it encompasses. Right. So this one might be a little bit less helmet focused and more just focused on the general barrier between you and the outside. That's right. So radiation. Uh, we, we've done a few different a- episodes now where we've 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 discussed radiation. Most most recently, the episode dealing with uh, like the demon core idea and like what happens with what happened with Chernobyl and the the risks pro, uh, posed by radiation to human health. Yeah, I haven't even thought about this before before we did this episode. But walking around with exposed skin on these planets, I mean. Can you get an Inferna 6 sunburn? Uh, yeah, I would guess so, depending on what uh, the, the the star or stars uh, at the center of the Inferna system are like. Yeah. Yeah, because both cosmic and solar radiation immediately become a problem once you leave the neighborhood of Earth. And to your point, even on Earth, solar radiation can be an issue. Yeah. Uh, depending on what your skin situation is like and where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, even on Earth's surface, we're exposed to a steady ambient level of radiation from the sun, solar radiation, uh, and the larger universe, cosmic radiation. But Earth's atmosphere and magnetosphere work together to protect us from most of the danger. So even astronauts on the International Space Station, 249 miles above Earth, uh, they're exposed to much more radiation than we get on the surface. They're still shielded by Earth's magnetosphere, uh, which extends thousands of miles into space around the planet. That's right. Yeah. So even though they're outside the atmosphere, they're still within this thing that repels a lot of this cosmic radiation. Yeah, this, uh, this sort of magic field. Well, it's not magic, but, you know, it's this wonderful protective shield, shielding around the Earth. So you land on an alien world. You're just thinking about breaching your suit, taking that helmet off. Does the planet have an atmosphere? Let's go ahead and assume it does. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, you really don't have a good excuse. Yeah. Um, so if there's so there's some level of radiation shielding just by virtue of there being an atmosphere. But is there a magnetosphere? So I'm going to go ahead and guess there is. Because one of the things that happens when there's no magnetosphere is that the solar wind strips most of the atmosphere off of your world. Yeah, this uh, we talked about the thin atmosphere of Mars. Mm-hmm. Mars does not have a strong magnetosphere. I think it doesn't have one at all. Yeah, we're, we're talking massive atmosphere loss in these scenarios. So, yeah, to, to, to break down who has a magnetosphere, there's Mercury, Earth, Jupiter, Ganymede, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Uh, Mars definitely does not have one. But in the case of, uh, you know, an absence of a magnetosphere, massive atmosphere loss, there, uh, there are many uh, astrobiologists that predict that, that potential life on an exoplanet might well be doomed without a, magnet- a magnetosphere in place. At the very least, it would mean that life would have to flourish there perhaps underground, mm-hmm. uh, behind, uh, you know, beneath protective ice caps or, or artificial structures and systems. You get into the same scenario when we start thinking about the potential Mars colonists, like how... How would you effectively shield, uh, um, you know, a, 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 a colony on that world? Right. You'd want to, like, dig underground or something. Yeah. 
Still, you got this protective spacesuit presumably provides some sort of protection against radiation, and even a world protected by a magnetosphere and an atmosphere can be a radioactive mess for creatures such as ourselves. Right. I mean, it could be naturally occurring radioactive uh, environments, uh, which we, we certainly encounter, or something compromised by an intelligent species radioactive dumping. So to come back to the, the alien universe, we don't know what, the, what other crimes the, uh, the engineers got up to. Did they decide to just dump a whole bunch of radioactive waste on any particular planet? It seems like the kind of thing we would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's a thing that I guess is worth considering. What is the range of possibilities for the natural ground-based radioactivity of a foreign planet? I mean, on Earth, there are natural sources of radiation apart from just what's coming from the sky. We've got uranium in the Earth and mm-hmm. Uranium decays, produces radon gas. If you inhale that, you can have radiation exposure. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I guess we just don't know what's possible on other planets. Yeah. Now, to put everything in sort of a uh, in context of what we have here, which is our again our best model for what we might find elsewhere, uh, it, in terms of natural radiation. Again, everybody has to do with some degree of terrestrial radiation thanks to naturally occurring radioactive materials such as uranium, uh, thorium, radium. Uh, etc. in the Earth. And uh, the inhabited area on the planet with the highest levels of, uh, of terrestrial radi- uh, radiation is Ramsar, Iran. And this is due to a, a nearby radioactive hot spring uh, and building materials that have been harvested from there. But I think I recall reading, because we did a uh, now piece on this, didn't mm-hmm. we, that that actually in Ramsar, like people are not, don't really have much worse health outcomes, despite the fact that they're exposed to elevated levels of radiation. Well, that, yeah, that's my understanding. But uh, but just in terms of like the levels here, and these are going to this is what we're looking at, and this is going to be in uh, NGYs or nanogray units, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's going to be uh, per hour, I believe. So absorbed rates of radiation in the air in Ramsar are going to be between 70 and 17,000. Whoa. And again, that's the highest you're going to find uh, for an inhabited uh, area on Earth. But if you go into uninhabited, uh, then this is the place that takes uh, takes the cake. Uh, the, the black beaches of Guarapare, Brazil. And uh, they contain uh, monazite, which is a phosphate of rare earth metals containing uranium and thorium. Uh, so it's in the sand here, and it produces absorbed dose rates of of ninety to ninety thousand uh, ngys uh, per hour. Wow! And now that's just natural radiation. If you go ahead and you uh, factor in radioactive pollution, in our case by humans, but in another case by some, you know, it doesn't even have to be an existing. Uh, extraterrestrial species. You know, presumably you could have the radioactive uh, waste of a of a uh, of an, an interplanetary or simply planetary society that then later got on to destroying itself. Right. Like, what if we arrive on an exoplanet and we realize, oh, the previous uh, inhabitants annihilated themselves with an atomic war? Uh, surely that's been explored. That sounds like classic Trek, right there. Sure. But um, if, if we factor that in, then the most polluted example we have on Earth is uh, Lake uh, Karache. In Russia, this is a longtime dumping site for radioactive waste, and uh, by most estimates, the most radioactive place on the planet. Now, is that including next to uh, the elephant's foot in in Chernobyl? Um, I believe so. Yeah, I mean, the, wow. the, the idea here is that well, we're talking like long-standing, you know, yeah. uh, ra- radiation. So this was just a place where uh, just a small Ural Mountain lake where you would just dump stuff. 
uh, they would ju- they would just dump radioactive uh, waste continually. God. And uh, it uh, they let uh, researchers in in the '90s to analyze it uh, based on I think current satellite data. It's completely covered in cement now. There've been attempts to to manage it, but uh, in 1990. Uh, it said if you were standing on the shore of the lake, you uh, more than an hour of exposure would have been fatal. Wow! So I think you know you can you can imagine a scenario where you you land on a world. Maybe you have a preliminary radiation reading for just sort of the world itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you wander onto a black sand beach. Yeah, you you wander onto the beach, and uh, you know the next thing you know, you're absorbing increasing levels of radiation, which might not be an immediate problem, but it might be uh, you know a problem of prolonged exposure. Right. Well, when we think about radiation, again, there are there are two main ways that you would want to keep yourself uh, sealed from your environment. It mm-hmm. works in in multiple ways. So one is that you would. Have have a suit, hopefully, that would have some kind of shielding right. that provides a, a barrier against the ray radiation, uh, you know, the bombardment of your body with, with direct rays like gamma rays or neutron radiation. But then you would also want to keep your environment sealed so that you don't have the interaction with radioactive particles. And I think that could be one of the biggest dangers is the inhalation of yeah. these radionuclides. The more I think about it, it just might be better to leave the suit on uh, indefinitely. <laughs> no matter how delicious the neomorphs seem, no matter how delightful that beach may seem, maybe it's just better just to stay in the suit. It's, I'm sure it has a bathroom function. Okay, here's a question. You're totally out of freeze-dried ice cream. Okay. No earth food left. You're on the alien planet. You've killed a neomorph. Mm-hmm. Do you starve to death or do you try to eat it? Well, I guess you try and eat it. I mean, <laughs> geez, I don't know. Of course, knowing what I know about the the neomorphs now, I mean, actually, that maybe in a sense that's a survival method because you know that you might live on in some sort, some form or another, right? Right. At least your your uh, parasitic progeny. Yeah, yeah. The the neomorph sandwich kind of becomes you, and then uh, you're good to go. Now you're completely acclimatized uh, to the environment. You're no longer remotely human, but you're thriving. Okay, well, I hope you have enjoyed this weird exoplanet speculation with us. But uh, but I, if we haven't convinced you by now to keep your helmet on, uh, we're probably not going to, right? Yeah, it's probably off by now, I'm guessing, you know. But uh, but hopefully we gave you some good ideas here. Uh, now, that's not to say that I want you to go in and just Neil deGrasse Tyson the heck out of every science fiction film you see because I think there's, there's ultimately little joy in that. But, uh, but it, it does... I do think it's always important to to have the, the scientific reality, in, at least in the background. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an act of disengaging from what you know about uh, uh, the real threats of space exploration, as opposed to just not knowing about it to begin with, and and, and basing everything on uh, the sci-fi fantasy world you're observing. Well, I think earlier I mentioned something about how, for me, it has to. It's consistency, really. Mm-hmm. Like if if a movie seems to have an ethic of realism and hard science, I will mm-hmm. be troubled by things that are unrealistic. But if it doesn't across the board have an ethic of realism and hard science, then who cares? Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, it comes. it's, it's kind of like if you were to encounter a scene – where the helmet comes off in 2001. Right, know? yeah. Like, that would be a case where, like, whoa, come on, Stanley. Up until now, like, we didn't even have sound in space. Right. We were being just really hard with our science, and now you're just kind of throwing it to the wind. But, yeah. 
dust in the wind. God, <laughs> Do not let me sing the dust in the wind. <laughs> me, uh, I'm sorry for singing twice, y'all. All right, everybody. Well, if you liked uh, this discussion here today, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where we have all the podcast episodes. And we also have things like uh, videos and blog posts, um, in- including uh, my uh, expanded review of Alien Covenant. That is on the website, and that will be on the landing page for this episode as well. I'll also include links to other alien-related and sci-fi-related content that we've covered over the years. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. 